Scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, Beatitudes, hear now the text of Scripture. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Beatitudes. The word, our English word, beatitude, comes from the Latin word beatus, which means happy. There were a couple of words that could have been used in the Latin translation of the Greek word. One was beatus, which is the one that's used, and the other is felis, where like feliz navidad, it means bliss. It means happy beyond a measure. And sort of in keeping with the consistency of the Old Testament usage of words as the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, written and, I mean, translated a couple of centuries before the New Testament era, this particular translation sets forth a consistency with the Beatitudes of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus now is using a very familiar form of expression, a beatitude. Probably the best known beatitude in the Old Testament would be Psalm 1. Somebody goes to the head of the class. <laughs> Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's a beatitude. And it's not only the fact that he's happy and blissful, but he's well-adjusted. He has a measure of peace and prosperity and a measure of stability in his life. His, his tree is planted by the rivers of water. He's fruitful, gives forth his fruit in its season. He is not going to find himself in a situation that is shrinking and negative and deleterious and descending, but he will be prospering. And that's the beatitude. The question literally is, what kind of person will be blissful or happy or well-adjusted or stable or fruitful in the kingdom of God. The preaching that's been done by Jesus is a message of the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God is the rule of righteousness and justice that's embodied in the king himself. 
And so the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah who comes to bring a rod of iron, a full, final, righteous, eternal rule upon earth. What kind of person would be comfortable under that kind of government? As much as we love and idealize our democracy, uh, to the extent that we understand it, democracy is not God's form of government. Monarchy is. But monarchy can easily be a benevolent dictatorship or it could be a tyranny. A nature of a a monarchy is all tied up in the character of the king. If he's a good king, a righteous king, a fair and just king, a strong king, a shepherding, loving, caring king, a compassionate king, that's the kind of kingdom you have. And it's dependent upon what kind of citizen you have. Are these citizens who are rebellious, who are insurrectionist, who are hateful to each other, who are in effect borderline criminals in their daily activities? Or are these submissive subjects, willingly submitting to a righteous, just king? Are these citizens and these these, uh, inhabitants of this kingdom, are they the kind of people that appreciate and love what their king has done for them and seek to do all they can in response for their king? Is this a a people who long to see their king? They can't wait for the various occasions that would bring them to the great capital city where they would meet in procession the king. Or is this one of those people that dread the king coming to town and hide everything and run and, and do everything they can or plot against him? What kind of citizens do we have in this, in this kingdom? And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount does. It plunges right into these Beatitudes, right into the character and the nature of the kingdom of God. And what kind of citizen will be happy blissful, blessed in that kind of reign. You say, well, Ron, anybody would be. No. No, there are people that have a hateful and a rebellious heart toward the king. There's people who want to ignore the king, to resist the king, to overthrow the king. There's always an Absalom in the family. But there's also a Solomon in the family. And those two men represented the two extremes of the rebellious son trying to overthrow King David, Absalom, and the peaceful son, Solomon. And so the kingdom of God has as its king, behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Whatever was the greatness of Solomon's reign, and you can read about it in the Old Testament in two different passages, the extent and the glory of Solomon's reign is exceeded by the reign of Christ. So what sort of person would be happy in that kind of kingdom? Would it be a rebellious person that enjoyed the presence of the king, that was submissive to the king, 
obedient to the king, loved the king's law. How many times do you read about a law being passed that will go in effect on January the 1st of next year? And, and you think, that's a ridiculous law. I don't like that law at all. It's either uh, violates some principle we have or it just interferes with our freedom or it just doesn't make sense. Or it's unnecessary. Or you think it's unconstitutional. You, you critique the law. But how many people will look to the king and say, oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Is there a citizenship that will view their king and his law and his word like that and appreciate his kindness and his mercy? And his establishment of justice where there is in this kingdom absolute fairness. All we hear is constant ranting and raving in our public life about somebody's rights have been violated, somebody's been offended, somebody has been, has been abused, and all of this back and forth because there's constant friction among the citizens. And it's as though they can't even hardly get along in the same, on the same planet now, much less in the same state or the same room. What about a kingdom of peace? Not only a kingdom of righteousness, but a kingdom of peace. What if you have a kingdom where righteousness and peace have kissed each other and have become the intimates and the co-regents over all the people? Well, that's what, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about the king and what kind of citizen would appreciate, enjoy, be part of that kingdom. And we have several of them kind of plugged in here in a row. And uh, we will just look at the first one today briefly. It's probably the easiest one to understand right off the bat. And it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So let, right off the bat, we need to know, brothers and sisters, that we're talking about true believers, true born-again, spirit-regenerated, blood-bought, saved out of darkness and sin, freed, liberated sons of God, adopted if you're not fitting that description, this message is not for you. It's really not. You couldn't do this if you wanted to, if, you were, if you're not a believer. It's only the person that has reached this first place in coming to the Lord that will even fathom what it's like to have this character of being poor in spirit. Now, he's not talking about being poor. There's no virtue in being poor. In fact, the Bible speaks quite a bit about the causes of poverty. And in almost all cases, with the exception of a few of disability and, and real uh, uh, abuse and uh, oppression, most of the causes of poverty are sin. Sloth, laziness, lack of thrift, lack of family order, lack of a regulated person, self-control, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not saying blessed are the poor. We've had 
the social gospel now for about 100 years in our country. And it's now gotten all the way down to the good, solid evangelical churches, ours included. And here we are. We're facing it. It has a different face and it takes on a different tone. And it always has a whole thick layer of molasses all over it, put over there by the theologians and the people that really do speak in platitudes, but that's not really what they're saying. And that theology says, blessed are the poor. So if we want to inherit eternal life, if we want to be on God's side and participate in his program, we're going to spend everything we've got to go after feeding and taking care of the poor. And so they end up being sponsors of all kinds of dereliction and uh, uh, malice and indolence and sloth. And uh, I'll just stop right there. I think you get the point. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. What is this poverty of spirit? Well, the scriptures go back in the Old Testament that this was indeed going to be good news, very good news for God's people. And here's a familiar passage for you. Isaiah 61, the proclamation of the Jubilee year that comes upon God's people every 49 years, the 50th year is a great year of liberty where debts are paid and, th and property is restored and, and, and lands and, and uh, debts and obligations are rectified and things are set back in order. They're put back into the pristine order that they should be. In 49 years, a lot of things could get out of whack. And after the end of seven sevens, seven Sabbath periods, God brings to his people a jubilee year the 50th year. And it really, in the Old Testament, had a great significance. There's a lot of detail about what happened in the Jubilee year. But when Jesus came to this earth and began his public ministry, he declared that the year of Jubilee had begun with him. And you're familiar with the passage. He read it in the synagogue. You can read in the Gospels. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. For he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those that are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That last sentence, by the way, explains the reason for our salvation. It's not just to save us from our sins, which it wonderfully does, but it's ultimately to bring glory to God. It's what Paul says in Romans. The gospel is manifested, set forth, preached, believed, practiced, and obeyed because it is the ultimate thing that brings glory to God. If we want to glorify God, we need to have our worship services like this morning. But beyond that, we need to glorify and praise God in every aspect of our lives. But here are the things that are mentioned, the mourning, the captives, all of the things that are mentioned with the oppression of the people, the downtrodding of the people, the depressing of the people. And Jesus comes to alleviate that all. And in the process, he brings into his kingdom one at a time at a personal salvation level. Ye must be born again. 
You don't bring in the kingdom by your efforts. You don't work to enter the kingdom by your efforts. You don't employ the kingdom by your works and your efforts. You receive the kingdom. You enter into the kingdom. You are brought in by God's sovereign grace and mercy. And when you're in, you will find as you look at the door through which you've entered, it was a door of humility. The Lord brings, this is God's plan all along, way back in the, way back in the Old Testament when uh, the, uh, the people were facing captivity and a lot of other things. You're familiar with Isaiah where it fits in history there in the Assyrian period before the Babylonian period that we talked about endlessly in the book of Daniel. But listen to this little statement here. This is the one of whom I will look, or to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that you have that paucity of soul, that your entire psychosomatic unity that we call yourself, your person, stands in dire need spiritually before the Lord. Physically, you may be healthy. Financially, you may be well off. Relationally, you may be healthy and, and happy. But what's your condition spiritually? And the Bible gives us a grim picture of our condition outside the Lord. We're dead in trespasses and in sin. We're blind. We're disabled. We are helpless in our sin. And we recognize that poverty then we're able to receive the gospel. The whole need no need of a physician. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And if you come through the door that is just slightly low enough that your head must bow and your knee must bend, you've come in to the kingdom of God. I don't know who I'm talking to here this morning, but I imagine there's more than one who have never really come to the Lord in true humility, repentance, contrition, desperation. Whosoever shall cry out, call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. And that's the way we come. We come with that poverty of spirit. Let's check a couple of places where the scriptures tell us about this. Oh, by the way, uh, didn't read this for an earlier point, but if you go over to Matthew, I mean Luke chapter 4, where we have a parallel uh, passage in the uh, Beatitudes in Luke's writing, the Lord is giving uh, the, the uh, teaching to his disciples, and he, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In that beatitude, there's a beatitude associated with a woe. And it, 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 it's consistent. Blessed are you who are hungry and thirsty. And over here it says, blessed are, uh, woe to you that are full. In other words, there's a negative side of it too. And the negative side is if you think that you are well taken care of spiritually and do not need Christ. There's a lot of things going on these days with spirituality. 
I'm not talking about spirituality and peace in your heart and a sense of well-being and a sense of a presence or a connectedness. The New Age will tell us all we need to know about that because the old Buddhist came up with it thousands of years ago. It's the same stuff. That's not Christianity. Christianity is receiving Christ as he comes to you in the gospel, the whole gospel story from Genesis all the way through to the ministry of the early church and the future that's promised us in the book of Revelation. Here is my conclusion. To someone who thinks, or a church that thinks that it does not need to become poor in spirit, let me tell you what the Lord says. And notice the sequence of Revelation here. I'm in the book of Revelation, by the way. Um, it's Christ who's walking among the candlesticks, which are the churches. It is Christ speaking to the revelator John telling him to write and then John writes and that's what we read and in that it says the spirit says to the churches. I thought it's John writing to the churches. It is. I thought it's Christ speaking to the churches. It is. Our, our source of understanding that which we are led is by the spirit of God in these matters. And so the, the uh, admonition in each one of the letters to the churches is, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I'll just pick one church, the church at Laodicea, chapter 3. This is the Lord speaking, John writing, and the Spirit moving among them. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, and this is your claim, this is what we could write it up in the glossy brochure. For you say, I am rich, I am prospered, I need nothing. Sounds like you already have a measure of beatus or felicity. But listen to what the Lord says of that measure, that material measure. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I console you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That would be my message. Be zealous and repent. Then I've just got to add this because we're about to do communion. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Here's that kingdom. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 